when I went to college, my first semester, I got a 0.5 grade point average. I mean, that's not what my parents were looking for, you know, and it's not what I was looking for. And uh, I never did it again. I, I got my head on straight right after that. But I had to feel that pain of completely failing, just screwing up bad to decide for myself I was never going to do that again. You're listening to That Worked, a show that breaks down the careers of top founders and executives and pulls out those key items that led to their success. I'm your host, Cal Harrington, founder of Flash Growth, and I couldn't be more excited that you're here. Welcome back to another episode of That Worked. We have a great episode this week. I'm joined by Tom Bruce. Tom is the founder and CEO of Conversion Path. Conversion Path provides e-commerce brands with competitive advantages in remarketing, Google shopping, and paid search engine optimization. Tom started his career as a CPA and CFO for early stage ventures. As a former CFO turned marketer, he saw an opportunity to use his financial background to optimize digital marketing efforts. And I got to say, this is a great episode for anyone that is starting or growing a business. We talked about finding your niche, the importance of focus, and how to let go of control in order for your business to grow. And if you've started a business, you probably have heard this before. It's a really common problem that almost all founders will have to face at some point so they can get out of the way and have the business grow beyond just them. The piece that I enjoy talking about the most is going through those ups and downs that come with growing a business and how to really get comfortable on that roller coaster that is entrepreneurship. Because I don't know if there's a better word to describe it than that. It's a roller coaster. And I loved hearing how Tom managed those ups and downs as his business grew. So with that, I'm not gonna take up any more of your time. Let's get to the show. Tom, welcome to the show. Thank you. Hey, give us a little bit. What is Conversion Path and who are some of the customers that you serve there? Yeah, so I would say some of our main customers that we deal with are uh, FTD Flowers and uh, Samsonite. Those would be some of the ones that the audience might be familiar with. But we also deal with a lot of small and mid-sized e-commerce companies as well. Gotcha. And how long have you been doing that for? Uh, since 2011. So 2011. So you've been yeah. in this for a while. What made you get into that? So I worked at a startup before, it was a software startup called Zenode that was here in town. It was a very cool experience that had a nice exit associated with it at the end. And when I worked there, I started as their CFO with a finance background as a CPA. And so I, I helped them out with some fundraising and organizing uh, the accounting and things like that. And then I, I quickly started to get a lot of questions about digital marketing. And uh, the guys that hired me knew that I had messed around with ads in the past, basically just kind of on my own, did some work with Google Ads and uh, found it super interesting, I guess, because of my left brain angle. And I found Google Ads is very analytical. It's more of a spreadsheet exercise than a creative in a lot of ways. And so they started asking me a bunch of questions about their ads and how they were running them. And fast forward six months later, I was their CMO and I was managing an agency that ran the ads and I had kind of come up with a strategy that was different than the one that they had been running and I was ready to execute that. 
so I presented that plan to them and they gave me the green light and we did some uh, maneuvers to get a lot more sales out of the ad spend that they had. And so that was a great experience. When they exited the company shortly thereafter, they gave me a nice bonus for helping them achieve their goals. And that set me up really well because I had two wins from that relatively short career experience. The first being the capital I needed to start the business I wanted to start. And the second being knowing what business I wanted to start. Oh, I'd love to dive in on one of those pieces in particular. We'll definitely come back to the other. But you know, you mentioned this bonus structure. So this bonus is essentially when the company exited, you got this bonus? Yes. Yeah, they had uh, me and a, a, the gentleman in charge of sales, a guy named Dan Clifford that I worked closely with. We both had bonus structures to help them achieve their objectives of getting you know, to a certain level of sales, which supported them getting to an exit. Was this like phantom equity? It was. For our listeners that may be unfamiliar with this, phantom equity, and I'd be curious if this is how it worked in your case. So phantom equity is an agreement that you have set up with a company where you're not necessarily on their cap table where you have ownership shares in the business, but it's usually tied to either a number or a certain percent of what that sells for. And if the company successfully exits, that triggers and you get paid that amount. Is that how it worked with you? Yeah. Yeah. Phantom equity is great for the company because they have full control and they're not legally obligated to nearly as much as if they actually set up an official stock option plan, which is kind of irreversible. So yeah, that's a more common thing to find in a lot of companies until they reach a certain size. I have known a decent amount of people that have had phantom equity situations and done really well off of them. Of course, the obvious downside is that phantom equity most likely doesn't stay with you if you leave the company. So you do need to trust who you're with and you, you, know, you need to approach that, in my opinion, same level that you would if you're looking to get equity in the company. But that's a really cool story. And I think that's something that I think a lot of our listeners can get a lot of value from. So were you working at the company and then this happened or did you negotiate this prior to coming? No, I was working at the company and that happened. And uh, you know, when I first started working there, I, I really had no equity-based incentives at all. And I didn't think that that was going to change. But as we got closer and closer in conversations with acquiring uh, potential acquirers, I think that the managers realized that it was important that they you know, have strong incentives to retain managerial staff. I think that's excellent. Once you had that in place, did you approach your work differently? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I was a lot more bought in after that occurred. I mean, it's sort of a statement to people of how important they are to you. And so you do feel like you're a little bit more of a partner, so to speak, a little bit more bought into the organization, even though it is, fant you know, if it's phantom equity, they can fire you and you lose the, all of it. And uh, also with phantom equity, I mean, you pay ordinary income tax rates. And so if it's a sizable bonus, you might be giving up 40% of it, you know, whereas if it's a real stock option, you might only have to pay 20% in tax. So there's definitely some benefits there to doing it as a stock option plan, but that's a lot for a company to administer. It is. And I think a lot of people, what they don't realize too, is oftentimes with the options, you're buying that. Oh yeah. Good point. If let's just say you get $100,000 worth of stock options and you decide to exercise those, you got to pony up $100,000. Now, could that be worth it? Of course, it could be life-changing, but you still got that decision that you need to make. And it's funny if you read, I don't know if you saw this, but if you read on equity, Every single person has 500 different million opinions on what you do, when you do it, and how you do it. 
It's risky. I mean, as a business owner, when you start getting down the path of equity share, I mean, there's a lot of risk with that and it can go wrong in a lot of ways. So it's definitely got to be well thought out. And you have to know, I think equity works well when you know exactly where you're going as a business. And so if you're in a really volatile industry where you have to reinvent periodically, equity's harder to do. And I, I feel like the industry we're in now is somewhat that way. It changes drastically every couple of years. We're going through massive change right now, and uh, it, it's impacting everybody in the vertical. So that's a harder environment in which to use equity successfully and equitably, really. When you talk about those changes that are going on, how do you navigate those changes? I work a lot. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you know, uh, I remember one time when I was younger, I took the Strengths Finder test. Have you taken that? Yeah, absolutely. What were a couple of years? Do you remember? I can't remember. I, I, I like <laughs> yeah. it was early in my sales career because that Strengths Finders were huge in the in the sales space. I don't specifically remember those. I remember my Myers Briggs, which actually changed. It changed over time. Funny enough. But I'm curious, what did you find from those? Well, so, I mean, my top two were uh, futurist and strategist. I remember after taking that, I was like, eh, well, that explains a lot of the career choices that I have made. Like early in my career, you don't get jobs where you can do futurist and strategy work. They're just not on the table. And so I jumped around and tried to do different things and tried to do some of my own things because of that, because I wanted to do that kind of work. And I think that's ultimately what kind of led me to become an entrepreneur is that that's the kind of work that I wanted to do. Yeah. So futurist stuff, I mean, thinking ahead, where is this industry going is something that I do a lot of. I spend a pretty large amount of my time trying to figure some of that out and then make sure that our products and services are aligned to that. I mean, I would say I spend a ridiculous amount of time figuring out how to differentiate our messaging against who else is in the industry, but then also aligning what we actually do with that messaging. Because if we're going to say we do things differently, we need to then do things differently and it needs to matter. And so to make all of that work is just always a lot of work. When you kind of talk about those, that you're pairing kind of the messaging to what you're doing, if I'm hearing you correctly, it's we can go out and say something that's going to draw buzz. People are going to get excited about it. But if we can't back that up, then we're going to ruin our reputation very quickly. Is that correct? Is that, am I on the right page there? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think the thing that's common in our space is uh, there's a lot of companies that can, like, say, a retargeting company. They can do one thing really well, which is get an ad in front of somebody who is at the end of their buying cycle. And the challenge with that is a lot of those people were going to buy regardless of whether or not you put that particular ad in front of them at the very end of their buying journey. And so a retargeting company is going to count the times that someone clicked that ad and made a purchase. The difficulty with that is how incremental are those sales? I mean, a lot of those sales were going to happen anyway. So they have a high bar to prove whether or not they're driving sale, like real additional sales, but they usually don't do that. That's usually not in the scope of their work. What's the different way in which to do that? Yeah, I mean, the different way to do that is to do actual testing of the impact on total sales to the company, as opposed to them just reporting sales for which there was one of their ad clicks. So it's just, you know, they're reporting on kind of a directional indicator and saying, it seems like our retargeting ads are doing really well. Look how many times somebody clicked it before they bought your products. And then they don't take responsibility to prove whether or not those are sales that would not have otherwise happened. 
So you're looking at the full path as opposed to essentially, okay, here's the last one. Like, here's what our ad did, but what does the whole picture look like? Is that correct? Yeah, you got it. So to give you a little more color around that, what we're doing that is extremely unique, like it's shockingly unique in my opinion, is we're going to e-commerce companies and saying, we optimize your results around your total sales and profit of your entire brand, not just channels that you hired us to manage. And so that is something that people don't really like to do, right? The level of accountability is very high there. And that also means that if other parts of their business aren't doing well, well, we have to look into that and figure out what's going on. And normally people say, ah, no, I just stay in my lane. I manage Google ads and I'll tell you how those appear to be performing. But there's a lot of problems with that because you can start ramping up a Google ads account and according to the Google ads platform, it's going really well and you're making tons of money and you might triple your spend there. But then when you look at total results, a lot of times what you find is that really you're just getting more ads in front of people that were going to buy anyway. So what's really happening is sales are not increasing that much overall, but your spend is. And the company profit is tanking. It happens all the time. So how much did your early career, so you were seven years as a CPA, is that right? Yeah, about 11, actually, yeah. 11 years as a CPA. I guess, how did you get into that just in general? Well, let's see. Went to college, didn't know what I wanted to do, except I, I knew at a young age I wanted to own a business, like a real young age. My dad owned a business. Uh, my mom started a nonprofit, and it was a pretty neat nonprofit. It did a nice service in the city of Dublin. It was like the Dublin Lasky program. And it grew, like, I mean, she had over 100 employees and um, a lot to manage. And so I watched their lives. And I I thought that was pretty cool, pretty attractive, that I felt like they had something meaningful they contributed in the world. And that's, I just wanted to sort of follow that path. So when I get to college, I'm thinking about what kind of major I want to get into. And I feel like accounting might be kind of boring and difficult, tedious, detailed, you know. And so I'm, I'm kind of trying to avoid it. And I start in finance, but I ended up talking to this guy that is a pretty successful business guy. And he said, uh, I think you should do accounting because it is the language of business. He goes, look how many guys that are running the big companies around the country are were their CFO. And there's a reason for that. So I, I thought that made sense. So I made the change, went into accounting. I got out of accounting and uh, worked at a small CPA firm. How did you like that? Given that you're, when, like, when you think of the strengths finder as futurist and strategic, how did you like the work of accounting? Well, I mean, initially I would say I didn't all that much, so I found ways to change it. So doing taxes and doing financial statements is a look at history. And I mean, that is definitely not futurist work, obviously. So what I started to do was take that information and then I would go meet with the business owner that was our client and I would try to help them see based on what you did, you know, over the past six months or so, here's what you could do differently. So it might be, for example, seeing that they hired some new people or added new facility. And what I was able to show them is, hey, you made these choices when you were at 2 million in sales, but really you need to get to like three and a half million before you really come ahead as a result of those additional investments. And they might've had a plan to keep growing sales, but it was only really gonna get them to 2.5. So they realized, wow, we need a more aggressive plan to make this whole investment pay off. So I started to do that kind of work that looked ahead. And then that got me in conversations with the business owners all the time. And that was super fun to me. So 
just kind of found a path. Okay. Couple questions unpacking here. If I'm hearing you, you didn't love the initial work. You didn't like just kind of grunting out the work of just doing the accounting. And I should also clarify for our listeners, accounting for people that love it, the fact that you can, there's always a solution can be some of the most satisfying work that's out there. And sometimes I can be in an Excel spreadsheet. Personally, like this feels pretty good. But my question is, did you just start doing that? Was there somebody that was like, hey, Tom, go out there and be strategic with them? Or did you say, hey, I see some things here. I'm just going to take the shot and then offer this advice and see where it goes. Yeah, the latter. Uh, And in fact, there was resistance to it because what I was ultimately doing, I mean, now there are established CFO for hire services everywhere. It's not hard to find. But at the time, there were not. And that's what I was sort of paving the path for was CFO type of work and some sort of part-time capacity, but there was no model for it. So I didn't really know how to offer that, but I knew it's what I wanted to do. So I just kept pushing in that direction. And, uh, you know, my boss was, he was cool. Uh, he was a good guy. And he he knew that the clients were, were getting some value and they seemed positive about it. So he gave me a little bit of uh, latitude to do that, but it was limited for sure. And so eventually I ended up leaving and starting my own uh, practice And I really didn't have that much experience. I I think I knew enough to start a practice and figure out how to get some clients, but I didn't know how to run a business. And so I went out and got some clients and I was doing this CFO for hire type of work for them. And I was, I was a lot happier. So is this kind of fractional CFO type of work? Uh Uh-huh. So you mentioned you're a lot happier. Here's the thing I always find that's interesting. And this was definitely the story with myself is that one, the safety net, you're in a really safe career, right? You probably could have found CPA work forever and never had to worry about a job ever. But you had this entrepreneurial itch and you had this pain, but the pain, one of the things I find interesting on the show is some people have the pain in that this is a problem that I'm experiencing at this company, actually not too much different than later in your career with Znode, where you solved this problem internally, then built a business around it. But sometimes it's internally where it sounds like with you, it was, I wanted to do this work this work didn't exist, but I knew my expertise within accounting and finance that people do want this. So you went out and just created that. Is that right? I did. Yeah. And at the same time, I realized that everybody was getting on QuickBooks. That was the time of QuickBooks adoption. And they rolled out a uh, QuickBooks certified advisor program right about the same time. And I noticed that. And so I was the first guy in Columbus to sign up for it. I just got super good at setting people up on QuickBooks and solving their problems. And and a lot of times they were using QuickBooks and then using another system and re-inputting their data into it. It was psychotic. I mean, the amount of extra labor that was going into that, even like whole CPA firms were doing that at the time. And so um, I just got into the business of eliminating that extra step and just running everything through QuickBooks. And then it saved everybody a bunch of time. And so that was my niche for a while. Did you fall into that right away? How long did How long did it take for you to find that? Yeah, I mean, I kind of found it as I was on the way out the door at gotcha. the first firm. Yeah, which was great. I didn't know that it was going to turn into something somewhat significant for me, but it did. And uh, I started to grow that business a little bit. But because I didn't know how to run a business, I kept saying yes to everything that clients wanted, you know, whether it was tax based or some healthcare plan taxation issue or setting up QuickBooks or CFO go forward planning. And, um, you know, you can never build a business that way with 
at least not when it's small, because uh, you can't hire people that know how to do all that stuff. That's one of the most consistent themes on the show in general is, and I did the exact same thing. I knew this. I knew, like, as a revenue leader, I knew niche and then expand later. I didn't do it. I took everything under the sun. I was spread super thin and trying to find people that were experts in every single particular area. And it happens over and over and over again, like how important it is to narrow that focus. I am curious to ask you on this. Do you think that you would have gotten to the same place had you just niched earlier? Or do you feel that you had to see a bunch of different things and then say, okay, I've seen this. Now I can narrow in. Yeah, I had to experience the pain. I mean, consequence, I don't know. It's something I feel like I talk about a lot with my kids, but consequence is the greatest teacher, right? I mean, unfortunately, I can't just tell you a lesson. That is one that you really need to believe fully to the core of your soul in order to make decisions based on that belief. You have to experience it yourself. And so like when I went to college, my first semester, I got a 0.5 grade point average. I mean, that's not what my parents were looking for, you know, and it's not what I was looking for. And uh, I never did it again. I, I got my head on straight right after that. But I had to feel that pain of completely failing, just screwing up bad to decide for myself I was never going to do that again. I'm curious when you started conversion path did you do it again or did you did you narrow in right from the beginning? Yeah, I narrowed in pretty quick. One of the nice things uh when I started conversion path, I've got these little rules of business sometimes that I, I reference and uh one of them is it's ideal to not uh do something really revolutionary. Of course, I'm breaking that rule now, but <laughs> you know, I basically I wanted to get into a business where people are used to buying this service and there's an established model for it. It's profitable. People are used to paying somebody to manage their pay-per-click ads. And so all I have to do is go in and convince them that I can do it better than someone else. I don't have to convince them that they should pay somebody to manage pay-per-click ads, they're already doing that. They've already been convinced of that. So I only have to sell on one thing, not two. And uh, that makes the whole process a lot easier from a selling standpoint. That doesn't get talked about very often, right? I think everybody, and I'm not saying one way is better than the other by any means, but I think one of the things that I see all the time is, you know, you've got to do the zero to one product. You got to do this thing that never existed before and raise as much capital as possible. And I'm not saying that that's, I think sometimes it goes the other way where people are like, don't do that. Like, why would you want to do that? Well, if somebody wants to do something unbelievable, do it. But at the same time, if you want to be a business owner, there's ton like insurance agency, great example. Some of the best business models that are on the planet, you can go in there and have a great career doing that. Was that essentially kind of what you were saying? Like, I want to go into something that I know this is, I've got my little unique flavor to this, and then I'm going to go after. Is that essentially what you were referring to? Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's definitely the path of least resistance to getting to just simply having a successful business that pays the bills and keeps food on the table, you know, and I had two kids at the time, so I didn't want to take a ton of risk. But I mean, I, I definitely quit my job and went cold and, and all that. But I did not want to take even more risk of trying to build some massively revolutionary product that I had to convince people that they wanted it in the first place. That's a tougher thing to do. And I'm, I'm trying to do that now. Why? In business. <laughs> well, I think because when you see that there's something missing in the market and that it really needs to exist and you come up with that solution, you just develop a certain passion for bringing that to market and you just feel like you have to do it. And I feel that way very much to the core of my existence, I feel like. 
that when I came up with this latest product, which is an attribution software and service, it needs to come to market. The way that people are doing things with the measurement systems that exist today with Google Analytics and Google Ads or Facebook Ads, the measurements are are very broken. It's just not right. What was that feeling like internally, right? And I've heard this before, but you mentioned that I had to do it. Was it this anxiety? Was it this fear of missing out? Was it opportunistic? What was that feeling like? It was uh, a little bit of hope and uh, optimism because I felt like, hey, if I can bring this to market and drive some success with it, then it's going to create a lot of opportunities for people that work with us. It's going to help the companies we serve and it will change the landscape. It will it will fix a wrong. And so that makes me pretty happy. Then on the other hand, I had this feeling of dread because I had achieved a position in the business just by selling, you know, ad management, doing it the old way with some broken measurements. I was doing well enough in the business that I really didn't need to take on something like this, you know? Did you get bored? Yeah. And was that a big kind of driver where it's like, okay, we've got this on autopilot. We'll probably be able to continue doing this forever. Theoretically, right? Still making changes and adapting to the market. Yeah. Yeah. And then the boredom set in. I mean, I think there was a little bit of that, some boredom for sure. I think you're onto something there uh, that I probably haven't even thought about that much, to be honest. But I think the bigger motive for me was the fact that we knew that if we just kept managing ads, I mean, Google, Facebook, they're automating the ads increasingly every year. And so you have to differentiate in order to add value. I mean, the firms that manage PPC ads, as it gets more and more automated, the difference in value that they provide, if they're still just managing ads using the same measurements, decreases. And there are less levers. So there's still levers. There's still value. Uh, I'm definitely not saying that they're not valuable anymore. They are. But at some point, if they continue to go down this track of automation, it's, it's possible that it may be less so. And so the area where I knew we could make a big difference is fixing broken measurements. When you look at Google Analytics, especially as an e-commerce brand, I mean, the degree of accuracy at which it's showing you which channels actually drive your sales is about 50%. Kind of like running billboard ads in the old days, you know, people felt like it was, you know, they had about a 50% <laughs> accurate measurement of how those perform. And it was very broad, you know, it wasn't very detailed and specific. With Google Ads, it's very detailed. You can get things down to the click. Problem is, is half the time it's it's crediting the wrong click for driving a sale. One of the things I'd like to kind of go back to is when you said you had never been a business owner, what were the things that came up where they're kind of the surprises like, oh man, this is tough. I didn't think about this. What were the, some of those immediate punches in the face. Yeah, they probably varied depending on which business. I've started a few. The first one, when I didn't have any clients and I just sort of quit my job, sitting around the house and realizing that I didn't have work to do and I had to figure out what I should do with my time to try to go get work, that's a pretty anxious experience. Um, And it takes some time to develop any level of comfort with that. I mean, and until you have clients, you're never really going to be comfortable because you're not really making it. But once you start getting clients and uh, you got some revenue coming in, you're paying the bills, uh, your comfort increases, then a big client will pull the plug and say they're going a different direction and your anxiety's up again. And then you keep going through that cycle over and over and over again. And after a few years, you get big enough where you don't have quite as much anxiety around that. You still have some, but not as much as 
the beginning. And you're a little bit more insulated from it just because you're bigger. So that was one of the things that I think is challenging is just the personal comfort with being an entrepreneur and dealing with those ebbs and flows that you don't get when you're in a job. How did you normalize that? Meaning a lot of people go through this on kind of that roller coaster of I've got clients, I don't have clients. I've got clients, I don't have clients. I've got more clients, my floor goes up. Was it more of a time game or were there specific things that you did to even that roller coaster out? Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, it probably is somewhat of a time thing. Just, you know, you sit in a, a difficult situation for a longer period of time and you get more comfortable with it. I think that's my best guess of the answer to that question. Yeah, I, I mean, I've found it personally for sure in that I, I said like one of my biggest piece of advice is I took my foot off the gas on sales. We had a lot of clients, took my foot off the gas, and I should know this. Like I've been a revenue leader my entire career. The only thing I have ever thought about for the past 15 years was new pipeline and I took my foot off the gas. And so went back on that roller coaster. So and, and if I'm hearing you correctly, it's over time, it's almost kind of like everybody, more people know what you do. You've got happy clients. Those happy clients start talking and then it just starts to kind of snowball. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. For us, ours took off because we invented a, an algorithm in shopping ads that was really powerful. And we could basically hijack the whole Google search page and the shopping ads. And that is a very meaningful thing to show someone. And so when they saw it, they knew we were doing something unique. And so after that happened, the business really took off. I mean, people just referred us and it went to a whole new level. And so that was a pretty fun and exciting experience. It wasn't just overnight. It was a lot of hard work and all that, but it was definitely in a positive trajectory and we didn't have to do any selling whatsoever. So suddenly we were a company that most companies that would be that size in our industry would have salespeople and we had none, but we were that size anyway because of what had occurred. And so then that algorithm, it still works and it still is beneficial to certain brands, but it's not a slam dunk like it used to be. So we can't really lean on that as much as we used to as being just the sole driver of why people should hire our company. And so that's part of the reason that we started to work on a pivot in the direction that we're going now. But now I can see, you know, we're at this certain size and we need BizDev. It needs to be a part of what we're doing going forward. And also it's a healthier company if you've got BizDev, you know, because you can do things like if you got a client that's no longer a good fit for you, you can replace them. Right. And when you're small, you could make those choices because you're deciding to be small. That's okay. But as you're big and you've got employees and everything else, sometimes you got to keep those clients if you don't have that, if I'm hearing you correctly. Absolutely. What were some of those stages as you grew this, right? You've been doing this for almost 12 years now with, with Conversion Path, and you've got a big company now. What was it that as you're on the way up, what were some of those stages where so right now, if I'm hearing you, it's like, okay, now our stages, we need to unlock our next level of growth. We need a business development machine. What were some of those bottlenecks on the way up that you found that prevented you from hitting that next level of growth? So I think that one of the things that I always started to realize once we got past like 10 people was that usually um, the limiter is you you know, the business owner and the decisions that I was making were often really the limit. You know, do I have the right people in the right roles? Do I have the right structure to support clients? Do we have the right incentives contractually that 
you know, retain clients for longer periods of time. Are the decisions made ultimately going to support where we're trying to go? And sometimes, I mean, I'm definitely the limiter. And so I've been slow as a result of the success we had with our shopping algorithm. I've been a little bit slow on getting to building out a biz dev function. That was our limiter over the past probably two years. And I'm definitely aware of that. And so that's why, you know, we're working with you and, and glad to be and uh, making some progress. And soon we'll have we'll have a healthy biz dev function before we know it. I'm sure, it will, you know, it's going to take time to get it right and have it be consistent with our personality as a company and not just be more noise in the industry, which is such a prevalent thing, right? In our industry, we're marketers, so everybody's got something to say and is really good at getting it out there. And so there's just tons of chatter. And so that causes everybody to ignore it. And people are pretty well trained to, to do just that. So we got to cut through that noise. So we got what we have is sort of a tall order from that perspective. Absolutely. So if I'm hearing you correctly, it's you are the bottleneck in some of these pieces. And in order for even starting at 10 employees, you started kind of delegating and removing yourself from some of these functions in order to get to that next level. Is that right? Yep, definitely. And that's something I have not struggled with as much as a lot of leaders that I've talked to. They struggle a lot with the letting go. I'm not sure why I'm a little more comfortable with that. And uh, maybe it's just because I only have so much time and I know that I need to spend my time on making sure that our product is differentiated and that it actually drives value. And that alone is a, that's a full-time job. Where did that kind of trust come from? Was it a trust of, or not, I want to say necessarily even trust, was it motivated by trust or was it motivated by pain or was it both? So you've probably read E-Myth Revisited. Yep, absolutely. So, I mean, one of the things they talk about a lot in that book is that most people that start businesses are entrepreneurs or uh, technicians. And the majority are technicians just because the percentage of the population that are truly made to be entrepreneurs is like single digit. It's just not a lot of people that are wired that way. And so ultimately, most people start a business because they're really good at something, plumbing, building speakers, whatever. And so they get into that because they think they can do it better than the guy that they worked for before and make a living doing something they have passion for. And so those are the people that have a really hard time letting go. And I think I'm much more wired to be an entrepreneur. And I think I kind of landed in the ad space and I love it. It's a super cool industry. I'm really glad that I made the move from accounting finance to the ad space. But am I an ad guy like at the core? Like, is that how I would identify? No, not really. And that's why my job has completely changed like six times over. I don't even log into ad accounts anymore. You know, I've got people that do all that, but I log into different systems so that I can see the bigger picture and work on the strategy and overcome some of the measurement problems that our clients deal with that are limiting their sales. So you're working on what's coming. You're not working on what's there right now. Yep. And given that, that your strengths were futurist and strategic, does that make it that much more fun for you to be working on that work? It does, yeah. It's a lot of fun, and I, I'm excited about the ground that we're breaking because we're aimed at a different dartboard than most agencies that we see serving our ideal client profile. Most of the time, they're optimizing to what Google Ads says drove sales, and we know that's not right. Or they're optimizing to what Google Analytics says is driving sales. And again, we know that's not right, so that... There are decisions being made for their clients that are not really optimal. They can't be. And so 
that's what we're wading into is actually aligning with our clients' actual impact to sales and profit in total, as opposed to what a broken measurement system is claiming is happening. One of the things I find most interesting about this whole story is the fact that, especially what you're hyper-focused on now, you know, before, from what I'm hearing, it was this, you know, we had a really good way to crack the algorithm of Google within shopping. But now it's much more around, and not to say that wasn't profitability then, but it was a marketing advantage. But now it's more in that finance side. Do you think you would have been this successful in this business if you didn't start out on the accounting and finance side? No, not even close. I mean, I I would have, I think, made some of the same, I guess I'll call them mistakes that a lot of practitioners make. I think what has happened, especially early in this industry, after ads were first invented and people were trying to figure out how to create agencies to manage them, what seemed to be really common is they would take the person with a marketing degree and pull them into, hey, you're going to manage these ads. Well, it's a super left brain exercise. I mean, it's all numbers and analysis and understanding ratios of numbers. And I can't believe how much I use algebra in this job. You know, those people, that's not what they were looking to do when they chose to go into a marketing degree. They're usually uh, more creative thinkers, you know? And so they get pushed into something that um, in a lot of ways is probably not going to be their greatest competency. And so I jumped into the ad space with just a, a lot of experience on the left brain side of things and thinking, and I'm just very analytically oriented. And that was super helpful. Makes total sense. When I first owned marketing, my number one thing was for that side was I need somebody highly analytical because I'm not. I'm much more on the left brain creative side and I needed that and because otherwise I would have just burned through money. If I was the one doing it, I would be burning through money. Tom, the last question I have for you is if you were to give advice to your younger self, what would that conversation be? What would that advice be? Age is totally up to you. Uh, you know, probably, uh, ultimately, if you're going to build a business and you're going to work with multiple people, I think aligning with people who have similar values to you is pretty clutch, <laughs> you know, integrity. Like I won't partner with anybody until I've worked with them for at least a year. And ideally it's more like three years just because people have different levels of integrity and different values. And you can't assume that it's, you really can't assume anything about that. You need to let people's actions speak, uh, not their words. And so by working with somebody for a couple of years, you're going to run into like a hard thing at some point in time and see how they handle themselves when that occurs. And uh, the, the people that handle it well are the ones that I want to align with and I'd feel comfortable working with for a longer period of time. And so I've got some people I work closely with that, you know, really fit that mold. And that's why we're, we're still going at it. I love it. Tom, thanks for coming on the show today. Yeah, thank you. I hope you enjoyed Tom and I's conversation. I love talking about his trials and tribulations of growing his business. Growing a business is frustrating and 100% worth it at the same time. If you want to learn more about Tom, you could find him on LinkedIn in the show notes. Also, if you like this episode, you could find me on LinkedIn to let me know. And if you really want to support the show, a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify is very much appreciated. Thanks for listening, and I'll see everybody next week.